Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. From the Society for Nautical Research, in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast and to this, the second of several episodes dedicated to Maritime Australia. I have begun my odyssey in Fremantle in Western Australia, the location of the truly fabulous Western Australian Shipwrecks Museum and the Western Australian Maritime Museum. In episode one, I spoke with Ellie Spillicom about the Dutch in Western Australia, a fascinating story of discovery, mistakes, perseverance and courage. Today we're following up on that theme, looking in particular at the Doifkin, the small Dutch ship which in 1606 is credited as being the first vessel on board of which a European crew first sighted the Australian mainland. Now to tell me more about this ship and this amazing moment in time and also the replica of the Doifkin that was built and then launched in Fremantle in 1999, I spoke with Graham Cox. Graham was a founding member of the Dyfkin 1606 Replica Foundation, and later he became project director. He was responsible for the launch and the final fit-out of the replica, and then he was responsible for the history-making Chevron 2000 Dyfkin expedition to Indonesia, Papua New Guinea and Queensland, and the VOC 2002 Dyfkin voyage from Sydney to Indonesia and the Netherlands. This was the longest Age of Discovery replica ship voyage ever completed. Graham is the author of a book to be released later this year titled Through Darkest Seas, which documents the building of the Dyfkin replica and tells the story of the ship's voyages through Indonesia and around the world. Here is a man with a wry smile, a twinkle in his eye and the occasional faraway look as the phenomenal logistical difficulties of a maritime challenge like no other come back to haunt him. As ever, I hope that you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Here is the charming Graham. I'm sitting outside the Shipwrecks Museum uh, in Fremantle with Graham, who's uh, come to tell me all about building the Divekin and the history of the Divekin. But you just let it slip that you're a Fremantle boy. So could you tell me a little bit yes. about this place? Where, what, tell me about the history of Fremantle. Uh, oh, the history of Fremantle. <laughs> well, Fremantle begins in 1829, but a long time before that. Where we're, where we're sitting here, there was an Aboriginal community living, and uh, they used to um, 
go and uh, feast on the whales which used to be washed ashore just near here right and you'll know that the um the roundhouse is, is just down the road here, which was the when the Europeans came here and started exploiting the whales underneath, and then they built a, a jail up on top. So we're right in the spot where Aborigines used to gather, and then they would cross the sandbar at the entrance to the Swan River. Yeah. Of course, in 1829, the first European colony began here with uh, Governor Stirling. And this, this big building behind us, which houses the museum, that was a, a warehouse and built by convicts, I presume? Yes, yeah, it's a customs house. You see, all of the buildings here are built in limestone because there's limestone everywhere. Yeah. Um, it's an old reef, and uh, Fremantle's built on an old coral reef, really, limestone reef. And uh, so this area is incredibly interesting. Yeah. Um, it, this is really where the colony of Western Australia began, or as it was then, the Swan River Colony. Yeah. And then they moved down to Perth uh, a little later. Uh, fairly quickly they moved up to Perth, you know, east of here, up the Swan River, um, which had been known for, um, by the Europeans for 150 years before the, the colonists arrived through the Dutch discoveries along this coast. Yeah. So um, Fremantle is sort of like, well, what would you say, the, the originating colony of Western Australia if you take Albany out on the south coast. Yeah. But uh, yeah, incredibly historic place. Um, more, most of the buildings you'll see in Fremantle are from the 1890s, and that was when the gold rushes began here, which yeah. was the, the uh, richest mile of gold-bearing earth in the world, really? which is 800 kilometres east of here at Kalgoorlie. So this became a boom town uh, during the gold rush years. Yeah. So much history. But we're here to talk about the Dutch, so yes. I'm going to make you stop talking about Fremantle, even though I'd like to <laughs> listen to you all day talking about the wonders of Fremantle. Um, the Dyfkin. Yes. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Um, let's sort of go back to the beginning. Why, why was the, the ship a significant vessel? Well, the, the Dutch um, went to Indonesia in, uh, in around 1598 to try to exploit the spice trade which had been dominated by the Portuguese up to that time and uh, and they had fast incredibly strong and manoeuvrable vessels the Dutch East Indiamen as they became known and they were superior to the Portuguese ships the uh, the first Dutch fleet went to the Indies in 1598 in uh, in 1606 there was a another fleet to the Indies and uh, and a small ship, a yacht, it was called. I have to do that with the guttural yacht. It's better. <laughs> Not enough <laughs> saliva. Um, there was a yacht, which was the scout ships of the fleet. And uh, there were usually a couple of them, and then there were the big East Indiamen. So the East Indian might be six, 7,000 tons. The, uh, the yachts were, well, yachts, were um, 110, 120, 130 tons. And this was one of those ships. The, uh, the captain of the ship, William Yance, was ordered um, by Kuhn, the, the governor of the Indies at that time, to go off in search of a land of gold called Nova Guinea. And it was, I, I've heard on one of your previous podcasts about Magellan and uh, his uh, search for gold. Yeah. And uh, this was the same thing, uh, but another 80 years later. And... Uh, so they, they'd heard about this mythical land of gold called Nova Guinea, not to be confused with present-day New Guinea. And so um, the, the seasons were right, and uh, they sent this small ship off uh, southeast to find this land of gold. And uh, instead, they went on the, <laughs> on, the, on the monsoon, 
uh, which which blows down. The monsoon's blowing now, and yeah, does, you know yeah. about all of the floods in the north of Western Australia yeah. at the moment. The monsoon is blowing, uh, was blowing, and it blew them to Cape York in um, in Queensland, Cape York Peninsula, the Gulf of Carpentaria, which wasn't named that at the time, of course. And uh, they sailed 250 miles down the coast, mapped it, landed, although that, that's always up for debate about how many times they landed, where they landed. And then they, they sailed back, um, got into a lot of trouble on the way back, ended up back at Banda, the uh, spice island for um, nutmeg and mace. Yeah. And, uh, and was reported, their arrival was reported by John Saris, the an English merchant. So we know about that. And that, that, uh, that voyage to Australia in 1606 was the ti- first time recorded in history that Aboriginal people met people from the outside world. First time recorded in history that Australia appeared on a map and the first time that Europeans recorded in history, because it always has to be recorded in history, first time Europeans uh, set foot on Australian soil. Now that, that began uh, 164 years of Dutch exploration and visiting the Australian coastline. They liked what they found. They didn't like it. They didn't see anything they wanted to stay for. Um, as the Dutch, uh, the Dutch East India Company said, God is good, but trade is better. Yep. And uh, so they didn't find anything which they could see a value that they could trade for. The yep. Aboriginal people weren't particularly friendly to them, no. uh, although that's up for discussion as well. And uh, But in the next... 164 years, there are something like 42 voyages by the Dutch to Australia. They mapped three quarters of the Australian coastline. And then an English gentleman, um, Lieutenant James Cook, sailed up the eastern coast of Australia, mapped the last quarter of the continent. And, uh, and that led to the, uh, yeah, the European colonisation. Yes, so there was no settlement from the Dutch. The Dutch never settled here. Um, a lot of their ships were wrecked along this coast, yep. and you talk about the about shipwrecks, that, yeah. galleries, and uh, some of them survived, and they became the first European uh, residents of Australia, I guess, by misfortune, yeah. rather than anything else. But it was... I think a couple of unlucky ones were marooned as well. Was that off the um, Batavia? Yes, they were marooned. Uh, yeah, they yeah, didn't have any choice in no, that matter. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you have a... There's a lot of work being done here uh, by a fellow, Rupert Gerritsen, about the, the Dutch bloodlines in the Aboriginal communities around Geraldton, which is uh, you know, uh, 500 kilometres north of here. Um, so there's, there's that... Um, their legacy, I guess, in Western Australia. The Aboriginal rock art of um, ships, I thought, was, was extraordinary. Do you know much about that? It is, yeah. There's, um, there's two. There's rock art. There's, there's, there's also the the ochre paintings in caves. Mm. Um, there's one in Queensland which looks like a dead ringer for for the Dyfkin. Yeah. Um, so these, I should have said, these specifically, um, it's art of of vessels of you yeah. know the, the maritime world. Yes, yeah, so they're there. The other thing is um, um, Bruce Chatwin wrote about it in um, in uh, the Songlines book many years ago about how how um, stories were transferred from, yeah. from uh, over time over hundreds of years. And if you go to the Cape York Peninsula in Queensland, the stories of of uh, the Dyfkin are still in the in the stories of the area, and uh, there's some discussion about how um, missionaries have 
have reinforced or changed those stories through teaching. Um, but basically, if you go to around the Pennyfather River, where, where William Yance first set foot on Australian soil, um, they tell the story of the, of the ghosts arriving and the sails. It's a staggering story. Yeah. So let's talk about the, the making of the replica. Whose idea was that? Well, a guy called Michael Young, um, who's a Fremantle boy as well, um, Michael uh, was uh, a Dutch migrant to Australia. Uh, his family settled in Sydney. He uh, was staying on a on a farm, and would sneak into the library on the farm and uh, and read books about exploration. And was outraged that uh, that they always talked about Captain Cook. And of course, he was Lieutenant Cook when he <laughs> sailed on Australia. But they always talk about Captain Cook. Yeah, and uh, and. He was just a teenager, and then in his 50s, he had, by then he was living in Fremantle. The Endeavour replica had been built here yep. for the Australian Bicentenary, and that ship was hugely popular in, in Fremantle. It, it, it was regarded, we regarded it as our ship, you know, something... Uh, Is it in Sydney? We've done it. She's in Sydney now, yep. yeah. And uh, right, more next to Dyfkin, actually. At the National Maritime Museum, so Endeavour was built. He wrote a letter to the Fremantle Herald, and the Fremantle Herald's office is, is, is about fifty metres from Wonderful. us, just in the next yeah. building. And he said, "Ah, oh, look, the uh, the Endeavour's leaving Fremantle because it was always going to leave Fremantle. Ships that are built in a place very rarely spend their yeah, whole they're lives. They're supposed there. to leave, aren't they? That's <laughs> yeah, the whole point they of the, the whole point of it." So he said, why don't we build the Dyfkin? That's the first ship in Australia's history. It's a small ship. It'll only cost three or four million to build. Um, Endeavour cost $16 million wow. to build. So it was a big project. This would only cost three or four million dollars to build. That's not much if you say it quickly. And, <laughs> uh, and so, and so um, the, the little local newspaper was flooded with letters. And then the state newspaper, uh, the West Australian newspaper, republished the letter. And that created a huge flood of interest. I, and, um, and I was involved with Endeavour in those days, and, uh, and uh, John Longley ran in the Endeavour project. I had a chat with him, and he said, oh, yeah, I don't want to be involved in it, but there's these people, there's a whole group of them forming to do this. And he said, they know nothing about uh, marketing and business. You should you know, give them a ring and see if you can help them out. And that's how I got involved, which is like how a lot of other people got involved. Yeah. And uh, and then the breakthrough, really, in the in the whole process, was Michael George Kalis, M. G. Kalis, whose ships you can still see in the harbour here, yeah. all the blue and white ones, because yeah. he's of Greek descent. Um, no longer owned by Michael. Michael passed away in two thousand, but um, he agreed to join the foundation because he was interested in the maritime history of Australia, and that was the breakthrough. And then, for years, we we uh, fundraised, and then we built the ship with a with ambition to build the most authentic Age of Discovery replica ship ever built. Okay. How, how did you go around doing that? I mean, where did you get the the lines for the vessel from? The lines for the vessel we were, were interesting. Uh, a wreck called SO1 in uh, in the Netherlands in the Mardina Field, where, as you know, the old Zouderzee. Uh, the Islamia today has hundreds and hundreds of shipwrecks under the the mud on on uh, fields in on the land, and this one called SO1 was a was a yacht, and uh, and the lines for the ship were 
were unusual. Um, Dutch maritime art usually shows very bulbous hulled ships, mm-hmm. you know, high stern and, and bow, and um, and they always look a bit of how on earth could that sail? Well, this re- this um, wreck was found and and measured, and it showed incredibly sleek lines. Right, and that confirmed a lot of what our uh, archaeologist Nick Burningham, who designed the ship along with Adrian Dion, Nick looked at the, the, the records of these voyages and thought, these ships are fast, these yachts, they're fast little ships, they're not big, hulking East no. Indian, and these are really smart little ships, and, uh, and this confirmed that. So we uh, computer modelled the hull, um, uh, tested it in the computer modelling, through a local company here called Max Surf, which designed this uh, ship design program, very popular one, and found that we had the hull, this was the hull, this hull shape must produce a yacht of the speed that the original ship accomplished. Right. And so then we, um, we said... And you worked out the speed the original ship accomplished through the logs of its records? Yes, yeah. yes. All of the, Where are those kept? Those are in the, in the Netherlands at the Rijksmuseum. Yeah. And uh, so um, very rarely had anybody looked at those records for that sort of information. And uh, um, fortunately, we had a, um, a historian who worked here, Marit van Hauste, who uh, was living in Perth and finishing her uh, doctorate. And she... She studied the records in Dutch, in the original Dutch. It's very little of the 20 years ago of the Dutch records had been translated into English. And I think most of them had been done here, yeah. really, in this museum. So she worked out that there were three Dijfkens, and ours was the second one, not the first one from 1598, and not the third one. So we had the right ship, and we had the design, uh, the whole design, and then we just had to get it right. And the Endeavour, which had been put together here, was built with um, with Australian hardwoods, which are very durable for building ships. But we decided, and because we were uh, working with the museum here, that we would have this ambition of building the most am- the most exacting yeah. replica. So we we bought European oak from Latvia. Okay. Uh, the floors, the fatics, the knees, the planks, and everything shipped it out here, and built using fire. And this built part using fire. Built let's, just, let's, let's explore that sentence. Right. <laughs> okay. When um, wood has a lot of cellulose in it, when you heat cellulose up to the point that just before it starts burning, it becomes malleable and you can shape it, which is why um, people who make spears have straight spears because they straighten them in the fire. They don't start out necessarily with straight wood. It's the same technology that's been used for tens of thousands of years. But the Dutch used fire to, to build the ships. So instead of putting up all of the, the ribs of the ship, if you like, the floors, the fatics and the knee, the ribs of the ship, you would actually build the hull, put up the hull planks first and then f- fill out the ship inside. Okay. So we had that challenge here. Um, so we set up a hearth and it's, the hearth is only, was only about 100 or 50 metres from here, just in the, in the front of Amazing. the Maritime Museum. Yeah. We set up a hearth. Um, we had this raw timber from Latvia, um, still with chunks of shrapnel in it from World War II, oh, yeah, a yeah. lot of it, because yeah. there was a lot of battles in Latvia. Um, and then we started to learn how to do it. 
fortunately, Nick Birmingham um, had spent a lot of time in Indonesia studying Indonesian boat building techniques because they still build using fire in Indonesia. So it was a, it's a, in our region, it's a known thing. Uh, but we had to learn it. Um, Bill Leonard, the master shipwright, who's an absolute genius at building wooden ships, um, he was in charge of it and he got his people working on it and they worked it out. It took, I think, six weeks to put the first plank on. Try and work out how to do it. So let's go back to the hearth. So it's a hearth that's burning with coke? Uh, well, no, I mean, with the offcuts from the timber. Okay. Not everything, all, it's, it's there's, these wooden ships are built on a 3-2-1 principle. So you have three... So if you have three tons of timber that you pull out of the forest, you have two tons of timber once you've sliced it, and then you have one ton of timber that actually goes on the ship as a component. <laughs> and so 321 problems to deal with. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. So, and then all the, so you've, that one, the first one, which is the, the stuff you've put out of the forest, that's all cut up to make the planks. That timber is then used to fire the hearth yeah. to to bend the planks. So you set up a fire underneath, you have a, um, a structure with big pegs on it, and, uh, and you put the, the plank in at the height where you get the temperature right according to the, yeah. the amount of timber you've got. And then they use these massive pegs like clothes pegs okay. to, to pull the, the enormous plank into shape. Yeah. So we figured when, we've, when the boys first started doing it that if it takes six weeks to do one multiplied by 250 planks, we're going to be here a long time. <laughs> But they soon sorted it out and they could bend a plank in a day or two right. and get it to the right shape. So every single plank on the ship was bent using fire. Amazing, amazing. And then... How are the planks attached to each other? Uh-huh. The, so then the, the planks aren't attached to each other, they're attached to the knees of the ship, the floors and the futtocks, the inside shapes. And trunnels are used for those. Okay. And this was a... Um, people listening may know about the Matthew replica yeah. in Bristol yeah. and that was originally built with um, they, with 
uh, with trunnels, tree nails, which are effectively big pegs that you bang into the ship. Um, but the replica was made using bolts, and we'd heard that they'd had problems with their bolts. They had to keep tightening them as the timber shrank and as the ship moved. So we thought we'd go back again, authenticity. We've got, we're sitting right next to the Batavia mm. um, hull, which is all put together with, with, uh, with trunnels just on the other side of this wall. And so we used trunnels, uh, 3,000 of them, I think. Every trunnel had from the same type of timber, or did you use particular? Yeah, same sort of timber, so yeah. still from the oak. Um, uh, school children would write their names on the trunnels nice. when they came to visit. Yeah. So it's got thousands of names of school children on it. That's brilliant. With this ship, all hidden. And they are nailed in. Uh, the bitter end is cut off, as they call it, and then a wedge is put in. And the ship is now, well, she's now 22 years old. Those planks were put in 23 years ago. They're still as tight on the ship as the day they were put in, and that's because of the shearing strength of a trunnel compared with the um, the strength of a um, a coach bolt, which pull a coach bolt pulls in to the ship. A trunnel expands in the right. hole and creates this incredible shear strength. So the uh, the ship was absolutely beautiful when it was completed with all of this timber work. How long did it take for it to be finished? Um, three or four years. I'm trying to think of the exact time, but it it, it was over the years. And then we launched her in in um, about this time of the year in 1999. Let's talk and about the rigging for a bit. Yeah. Let's talk about. We talked about the hull. Um, how did you get a plan for what the the, the masts and the rigging, the sails? Well, the 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 ship is very simply rigged. It's, it's rigged. It's a it's a square sail ship with a latine and a bowsprit. Um, we, uh, we were lucky here that uh, many, or just after World War II in WA, the, the government here started collecting seeds from trees to, to grow uh, pine as a local timber industry here. And they went to Portugal and, um, and got uh, Pinus panasta, maritime pine, and planted it here. There are a phenomenal amount of pines here. I was, I was <laughs> yeah, amazed. Well, we're here with all the, the Norfolk Island pines, yeah, yeah. but they're useless for, for useless, ship building. They look great, though. <laughs> they look great. <laughs> but, uh, so panasta pine trees were, uh, were here, and uh, we were given as many as we wanted because there's a lot of um, uh, uh, iron in the soil here, and, uh, and it's very discoloured white timber. So nobody really uses it here, mm. but they've got the, the plantations are all over the place. So we were given those, so that the ship has solid trunk um, uh, masts, pretty much built from the same timber um, that the original ship would have been built from, because in 1600, uh, lowland Europe had run out of forests, and so they were getting the timber from the Baltic, from places like Latvia, and the timber for masts from places like Portugal and Spain, in, in that incredible... Yeah. Uh, era um, when Europe was decimated of its forests and uh, and so it has that. We also decided that the ship should have um, authentic sails so the sails were actually milled in the UK by a British Millerane company um, and the sails were made from flax and uh, and woven to the width of the original uh, weave and they were woven on machines uh, if we woven them by hand, we'd still be talking about it. And then the, and then the, uh, the ropes were made from hemp and uh, hemp fibre. And uh, and on um, 
150-year-old old rope walks in the Netherlands, really? actually. And every single rope was, uh, was hammered. That created a, a beautiful ship to sail the, because hemp is, a, is really nice on the hands, especially once yeah. it's been oiled. So compared with more modern manila fibre or even, heaven forbid, modern plastic rope, um, hemp rope is beautiful you know, to, to pull on if you're a sailor. So the ship had completely original um, rigging, which has proven to be a, a curse in a way. It was great at the time, but um, of course the sailors on these ships were constantly repairing the rig. It was constantly rotting and falling apart. And as one of the, um, the captains, Peter Manthorpe, said to me, one of the ship's masters, when I was complaining about the huge costs we had of maintenance, because the maintenance costs were extraordinary, um, he said, you've got to understand, these ships are constantly oxidising lumps of organic matter. <laughs> and so the crew is constantly repairing that. Yeah. And we discovered that on our voyages, that yeah. there wasn't a day where you just sat and looked at the sails and congratulated yourself. <laughs> I've not done well. Let's talk about those voyages, because mm. you managed to sail the ship um, quite remarkable distances. Yes, well, the second voyage uh, was the equivalent of sailing around the world on, at the equator. That was a big voyage. The first one left here in 2000, yeah. from, from near here as well, just over the road from here at uh, Fremantle Fishing Boat Harbour. And we sailed to Indonesia um, to reenact the original voyage of discovery from Banda to Cape York. So yeah. first we had to sail to Indonesia, which is 4,000 kilometres, no, more than that, north of here. And uh, so we sailed up the West Australian coast the, the correct way, which is always sail north up the West Australian coast. Yeah because the, the winds are from the southwest, So we sailed they're, to... They're pre-regular, they're like clockwork here. Yeah, I mean, the winds is. blow every afternoon, every, you know, they come in pretty reliable. Does that happen all year? It, no, in winter it, the patterns change a bit because oh, you okay. get the winter storms here, but in summer you're pretty right. Yeah. We left from about this time, or no, a little bit later than this, um, April, from here, yeah. and had a blistering uh, sail up the coast. We didn't crash into anything except one small object on the way. Uh, it was a fine voyage north um, and going to places like where the Batavia shipwreck yep. is. We visited there um, with the Zeitdorp cliffs, the Zaltdorp cliffs, where, uh, which are famous cliffs uh, to Cape Inscription, uh, where the first um, piece of uh, European memorabilia was Oh, the left. plate, we've, we've heard <laughs> about that. Plates. It's called Cape Inscription, is Cape it? Inscription. I think that's fantastic. Yes. <laughs> and, and we left our own, actually. We Did made you? we made an aluminium plate, yeah. and uh, the ship's um, uh, the ship's carpenter etched everybody's name oh, on it. Oh, very nice. And we, we popped it there. So I think that's in the Shark Bay account. So we, we did that just as a bit of fun. Yeah. But uh, Indonesia at the time was in a, in a terrible state. It had just got independence. Um, the various um, political groups and ethnic groups were all fighting for, for control, testing the, the democratic government. Um, we were due to go to Ternate and Makian and Ambon in, in the Spice Islands. Um, there's a civil war basically going on there. So uh, we didn't make it to there, um, but we got to Banda, which is the Nutmeg Island, which is where the ship originally left from. Yeah. We couldn't get insurance to sail in, uh, in summer because of the cyclone risk. No right. insurance company in the world, those gentlemen at Lloyd's, 
having none of it. talk about, would have none of that. Yeah. You cannot sail a sailing ship like ours uh, above the Tropic of Capricorn <laughs> in summer, forget it. <laughs> um, so we couldn't get the ship insured, so we sailed in winter. This was a curse. Um, we got to Banda and the southeast trade winds were blowing. Mm. And we were due, we had to sail between Papua New Guinea and Australia. There's a corridor that we had to sail down, and, uh, and it was a nightmare. Um, yeah. In a southeasterly direction. Southeasterly <laughs> direction. Straight in the face. A ship that's designed to sail on the trade winds uh, with the wind behind you. Yeah. So we sailed. Uh, I wasn't on board, I was organising the arrival. But we sailed um, in the most terrible voyage, running out of food. Uh, we weren't allowed to visit Irian Jaya because of, uh, of the, uh, the problems at the Freeport gold mine at the time. It's a, you know, it's a very controversial mine. Um, but the crew, to their credit, um, ate dal for four weeks because they ran out of food. And uh, some of them have still say that they will never eat dal again in yeah. their lives. And, uh, and we made it to the Pennyfather River on, on the Gulf of Carpentaria. Um, we did something which I think has never been done before in Australia by Europeans. We asked for permission to land. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> and, uh, and the Aboriginal people, the custodians of the Pennyfather River, gave us permission to land, so we did. If they didn't, we would have sailed away. And, uh, and that was the end of the first voyage, apart from a, a very big exhibition tour, which got us down to Sydney. Mm. Uh, we arrived in Sydney completely broke. <laughs> the, the, you know, we were only a charitable foundation, yeah. just a bunch of people wanting to do something. And uh, the Dutch government was, um, was wanting to celebrate the 400th anniversary of the Dutch East India Company. And, uh, the word celebration is a mixed one these yeah, days. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very um, troubled history there. <laughs> a very it? troubled history. Um, so uh, I was approached in Jakarta, when we were in Jakarta, um, whether the ship would be interested in going to the Netherlands. And the Dutch said, oh, this is fine. We've got lots of ships we can put your ship on and take it to the Netherlands. And uh, <laughs> we said, no, we don't do that. I was missing the point. <laughs> we, don't, we don't ship our ship, we sail our ship. They said it'll never work. Nobody's done it. Nobody's ever sailed a, a ship like this around the world. Um, it, it's a dumb idea. You're gonna, yeah, and the Dutch government doesn't want to support it because we'll, you know, what if you all die and it'll all come back on us? And so I said, no, we're not going unless we sail the ship. And uh, and discussions ensued. We uh, we came up with a budget which included all sorts of safety equipment. I think for the first time ever, uh, every this was 22 years ago. Every crew member had an EPIRB. Um, the ship had its own EPIRB. There was the the Can other. You explain what the EPIRB is. Um, for our a personal location beacon yep. for each person, a satellite beacon. So every single crew member had to have a satellite beacon. We had survival suits, which are usually only used in the Arctic or the Antarctic, but we had survival suits for everybody. Yeah. The whole box and dice, and uh, and. We convinced them that we should sail the ship and that it would be fantastic for the ship to sail on the Brower route um, back to, to the Netherlands. The Brower route, of course, across the Indian Ocean, the famous trading route yeah. to the east. So um, we left Sydney and uh, it was a voyage that, that had all sorts of challenges. It, uh, the longest leg was 55 days um, through the Atlantic. 
Um, we sailed up to Jakarta. We hadn't been allowed into Jakarta the year before because of the, the colonial overtones of the ship. Um, but we were, um, we were allowed back into Jakarta. So we left from Sunda Kalapa, the old port of Jakarta, sailed to Gaul, Sri Lanka, the, the uh, biggest VOC port in the Indian Ocean, down to Mauritius, to Rodriguez Island, which uh, Daifkin was the first ship recorded in history to visit Rodriguez Island, mm-hmm. um, which was like the, uh, you know, an amazing place. Um, then down to uh, Cape Town, where we refitted the ship, cleaned out the dirty fuel in the tanks, because she has diesel engines to get into and out of port, and then sailed up uh, through the Atlantic to the island of Tessel in, in the Netherlands. And that was the longest voyage of a ship of this kind in modern times. And um, the crew uh, pretty much... How many? The, the, the crew of the ship is 18. Uh, on that voyage we had about 16. It floated a little bit. But uh, most of the people that left Sydney arrived in in, um, in Tessel in the Netherlands and then we scooted up to Amsterdam for the other grand arrival. Uh, Crown Prince Willem Alexander welcomed the ship to arrive. It was a big deal. 20,000 people were there to see us. Millions of people came to see the ship during the summer exhibition tour in the Netherlands. And, uh, and that's all the good news. The, the, a lot of the crew members, I think, are, are still wondering why they did it you know, a severe lack of foresight was one crew member and I asked him why he did it <laughs> but uh, it was an amazing an amazing accomplishment for the crew yeah. to sail this ship which has just to give you an idea it has um, there are no there's only one cabin that's the captain's cabin it only has two bunks and the chart table so 24 hours a day that rooms it got people going in and out making uh, annotations on the charts. The uh, the crew sleep down below or when it's hot on deck. So basically, you've got 14 people camping in a in a in an area the size of a double car garage for a year. Wow! And uh, and there were only seven stops in the year. So it took a year to get there. Um, I still look back on that with some pride that I put that that voyage together. Yeah. And we accomplished it without the loss of any crew members, without any major illnesses, which of course is the great fear from these ships. Um, the ship survived the Agullas current east of South Africa. It's a horrendous part of the world. The, the crew were magnificent there, uh, sailing the you know skirting the Agullas bank. Um, yes. That's the, the story of Dive. Wonderful, wonderful story it is. Um, thank you very much indeed for sharing it with me. Pleasure. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, please don't let this be the last thing that you do to interact with our fabulous podcast. Firstly, go to YouTube, find the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube page and watch some videos. It's phenomenal. An ever-growing library of some of the most extraordinary and innovative videos showcasing our maritime past in new ways. My current favourite is the 3D animation showing how a 250-tonne, 21-metre and 3,500 
thousand-year-old granite obelisk was shipped from Alexandria to London in 1878. And if you're interested in maritime technologies, I know that many of you are, please look at the animation explaining how a curious 19th century propeller worked. This one had blades that moved in opposite directions. It's gone viral online. The clip has been seen nearly four and a half million times. As always, please remember that the podcast comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyd's Register Foundation. You can find them both online, the Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk, where I would encourage you to visit and to join. It's a great way to meet people with similar interests and a fantastic place to learn all about the maritime past from the world's best maritime historians. The History and Education Centre of the Lloyd's Register Foundation, which has been certifying the safety of ships since 1760, you can find at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk. And if you're interested in maritime technology, do please check out Maritime Innovation in Miniature. Just Google it and you will see the world's greatest ship models filmed with the latest camera equipment. You will not believe your eyes. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.